Washington, and happy Easter, happy Resurrection Day. Um, it's such a great privilege to have you here with us. We're going to do some announcements before we dive into um, thinking and reflecting and being fed by the Resurrection account, um, because we want to get you connected to the life of our church. If you're new here, welcome. Thank you so much for giving us the privilege and the honor of being here and worshiping with us on Easter. Um, we're just so grateful that you're here. And if you um, are wanting to get more connected, we have some events coming up that will be really good opportunities to do just that. And so um, the first one that's coming up is on Friday, where we're having a women's social event Friday evening right here at the church building. You can find more information on that on the website and register for that as well. Um, that's just a really good chance to meet people. Maybe you come to one service and haven't been to the other, and so you kind of don't know anybody from that other service. Um, this is just going to be a great time for you to be able to get connected to other women at Portico. So please join um, and register for that. Second, the very next day, Saturday, this coming Saturday, we are doing a church workday and cookout here from 9 to 1. And here's the heart behind this. The heart isn't to get a bunch of free labor. Like, we could honestly just hi hire some landscapers who would probably do a better job. Um, but that's not nearly as fun. And so um, we want our church to be unleashed on this building. We were just given this building, and we're still kind of like, oh, is this ours now? Can we do things? Like, it's weird for us because we've been nomads for so long. We've been moving from place to place. Um, but now that this gift has become official and that we actually are the ones who are stewarding this building, we want to really move in. And so this is kind of like a starting point for that. It's a celebration of the building. It's also a desire to be a blessing to this neighborhood. We want to make the outside of our building beautiful and appealing because what's in here, the community that God has made in this church through the gospel is beautiful. And so we want it to be attractive. We want it to be a blessing to the church community, it's a, also a great way to get connected. We're going to be hanging out and socializing. If you didn't know, um, Portico's nickname is Partico because we like to have a good time and talk and hang out. And so we're going to be grilling um, some food afterwards. You can bring a side if you want to, like a bag of chips or a drink if you want to. Um, but really just come, enjoy people. You can pray over the building if you want to. You can get your hands dirty. Um, we're going to have some activities for the kids and that kind of thing, too. So please register for that so we can anticipate, you know, kind of how many mouths to feed. And you can do that on the website as well. On Sunday, May 1st, the very first Sunday in May is May 1st, we are doing one service Sunday. And so this is kind of um, an experiment of sorts, but it's also our desire. We want the church to be unified. So as we have had two services since COVID, um, just to kind of social distance and that kind of thing, we have a desire to get people back together as one body. And so we're going to try that out. We haven't done that here in this building yet. We got a good taste of it, um, potentially on Friday, when we did our Good Friday service. And man, it was awesome. It was just such a blessing to see all of these faces together, worshiping God together. And so please come to that and just be prepared to have things feel a little more crowded than maybe... Um, you've grown accustomed to. And that's okay. That's a good thing. You can share a pew. You can share your, the space next to you with somebody else. Um, and it's actually a really good expression of kind of the body of Christ. And so just wanted to give you a heads up on that. 
And then finally, last announcement I have for you is that we are doing a prayer and worship night in May. I don't remember the date. It's not up there. It's sometime in May. It's a little bit later, so just give me a heads up. It's coming. You can find more information on that on the website as well. All right, that's all the announcements I have for you. If you guys have any questions or want to get connected to the church, we've got an awesome hospitality team. Be sure to swing by and talk to them. You can also just grab any of the leaders um, or people that you see serving, and they would be happy to connect you to the church as well. All right, so we are going to be looking at um, a very familiar text on an Easter Sunday, but we're going to be really zooming in on part of it. So we're kind of picking up the storyline after the resurrection happens and looking at what's the first thing that Jesus does. I just thought that was such a fascinating thing about this text. Is like, if you put yourself in Jesus' place, you were dead and now you're alive. It's like, what are you going to do? What's the first thing you would do? It's like, oh, I can breathe again. My blood is starting to warm up. The first thing that you would do would be the first thing that came to your mind, the thing of maybe first importance for you. And so this is a great way of glimpsing what is most important to Jesus. To put it another way, it's the purpose of the resurrection. We're going to look at the purpose of the resurrection because Jesus executes the exact mission that he came for in his first conversation, the first thing he does after he's raised from the dead. So we're going to be picking up the story in John 20, in verse 10. So you see Peter and John kind of running because they hear that the body's not there anymore. So they're very curious about what that might mean, and they want to see it for themselves. And so John beats Peter because he's faster. (laughs) It actually says that, and John's writing this, so you're like, hmm, really, John? trying to convince us of something here. But they see the empty tomb, and then they kind of believe. But what do they believe? And this is one of the emphasis of John throughout the gospel, is that there's different types of belief. And you can believe without really believing. So they believe at this point, they're like, yeah, the body's not there. Huh, what are we going to do about that? Like, they're probably going to blame us. They're going to think that we took the body. And so what they do in verse 10 is it says, then the disciples went back to their homes. And where it picks up after this chunk that we're going to look at this morning is they have locked the doors and they're huddled inside because they're afraid. They're like, we're going to get blamed for this. So let's hunker down. And on the way out, they kind of say, hey, Mary, like Jesus isn't there anymore. We're going to head out. And so in verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around And saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, 
Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, this is really hard to believe. This whole thing seems so odd. It seems so strange. And yet, Lord, it resonates with us. It meets us in the deepest human longings that we have. That there is a hope that transcends death. Lord, it's not a general hope. It's specific to each of your people. But it's also not an individualistic hope. It's a cosmic hope as you have shown off to the heavens and to the earth how good you are, how worthy you are of praise, how worthy you are of our adoration, and how you are the only place we can go for true happiness, for true joy, for true life. And so God, I ask that your spirit would be here with us as we look at what is a familiar passage that you would make it unfamiliar to us that you would restore to us those eyes that are blurred with tears but are wiped away so that we can see you fresh so that we might better proclaim your goodness to this world. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why are you weeping? We're just going to use some of these questions to try and understand this text because the text asks these questions and then doesn't really answer them, but the whole Gospel of John is answering them for us. So why are you weeping? So in order to understand Mary, we have to really kind of get into her backstory a little bit. And so Mary's backstory is that she was demon-possessed. She was kind of an outcast. She had a really seedy past. She would probably have multiple DSM diagnoses if she lived in our day. And people had kind of given her some space. She was alone, and she had grown accustomed to that. She had lost hope. And then along comes this Jesus of Nazareth, and he casts out the demon. He removes the oppression of evil that had taken over her life. And he says, Mary, follow me. Join me. Come and see. And so she did, and she learned, and she spent years following him. She witnessed the miracles that Jesus performed. She saw his teaching and the authority that he spoke with. She saw everything that Jesus did. And unlike the disciples, she was there when they crucified him. She witnessed his last breath. She saw the life go out of Jesus. This is 
probably around 36 hours later, and she's still crying. She's unconsolable. She's not in her rational mind either, because if she were in her rational mind, she probably would have gone with the disciples and hid. But she just doesn't care anymore. She says, in, in staying there by the tomb, it's as if she's saying, I've got nothing now. There's nothing else. So even though there's a lifeless body somewhere, that's all I've got. And she's grieving the loss of a new life that she thought she had. She's grieving the loss of hope for her life, for this world. There's also a blindness, too, that we see in Mary that we can all resonate with because it's part of our human condition. We turn our gaze on this earth. We turn our gaze onto the things of this world, on this life, and we kind of zoom in on it so that it becomes all-important. Like, this life is what is most important. And things that come from above, think the heavenly things, God's intervention, God's plan, it's just too big for us. And so, in some ways, we're just blinded by both our own expectations, the sin that kind of um, impacts and infects all of us. We're blinded by that. We can't fathom God's goodness because of that. But we're also blinded because of our finiteness, because of how little we are. And so her expectations aren't for a resurrected Lord, aren't for a resurrected Jesus, despite Jesus foreshadowing that, just despite Jesus teaching, I am the temple, I'm going to tear the temple down and three days raise it back up. And so she's blind to this, and she sees these two angels, and it's an interesting interaction that she has with the angels. What usually happens when people see angels in Scripture? They're terrified. They fall down. They start worshiping the angel. They start like begging for their life, begging for mercy. And again, you see Mary. She's just completely overcome with grief. And she's asking them, where have you put him? Where is he? Like, can you just tell me? And they, they gently, it's a rebuke, but not in the way that we think of rebuke. They're not shaming Mary by asking her, why are you weeping? They're trying to elude. There's actually not a reason to weep. There's reason to rejoice. And so why are you weeping, Mary? Mary was sure that she had lost everything that she had been given. She was sure that Jesus was done. Have you guys ever felt that way? Especially if you've been walking with God for a while. And like maybe when you first believed, when you were first a Christian, or during a season in your life, there was just a really powerful spiritual experience. And the joy was just easy. And sanctification was easy. Letting go of sin was easy. Living for God was easy. And then it got hard. And there's a question in your mind maybe, like, is Jesus done with me? Is this it? Like, maybe, maybe now I just live until I die, and I don't, there's nothing more for me here. 
And so I think we can understand Mary's grief. I think we feel that. We feel that even if we're not following Jesus, even as we are pursuing other things in this world. So if you're not a Christian and, or you're doubting and you're skeptical, you still have felt this kind of lingering disappointment, this grief, where what you hoped in lets you down, where you become disappointed. And then instead of kind of like zooming out and gaining any kind of perspective, you just almost like double down on it. And that's kind of what Mary was doing. Jesus, before he was crucified, he was my hope. He was leading me. He was teaching me. I need to find that body so I can remember the past. So she turns around after a disappointing interaction with the angels. She's like, okay, angels, (laughs) you don't have anything for me. And I think I heard somebody behind me. And so she turns, and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't see Jesus. She sees a gardener, what she imagines to be a gardener. And Jesus asks her the same question first. And it's a re-emphasizing, Mary, why are you weeping? But then he asks her a second question. Whom are you seeking? And this is a question that is more than what it seems to be. Because what Jesus is pointing out to Mary is, Mary, your thoughts of me were too small. You are seeking the dead Jesus. That's who you're looking for. You're looking for the the Messiah that was going to bring you a better earthly life, the one who is going to reestablish Israel, the one who you knew and who would be able to help you on this, in this life. That's who you're seeking. And so in a way, Jesus is saying, that guy's not here. The person that you're looking for is not here. And that's communicated to Mary because she doesn't recognize Jesus. And some people say that this is because she was crying so much that she couldn't actually see, but he's also speaking. And so she doesn't recognize his voice either. And then also, later, when Jesus appears to other disciples, it's the same issue. They don't see him. Maybe it's because his glorified body had been transfigured in some kind of glorious way. But they don't, like, fear him. They just don't recognize him. And this is where the resurrection breaks human categories, Like, this is something that we just, I I firmly believe this, we won't really fully understand until we see Jesus ourselves face to face and everybody else who belongs to him who has died. Resurrected physical bodies. It just, our minds can't fathom it. To see someone who is dead, walking, breathing, talking, with a heart that's beating, Who are you seeking? Mary is asking what everyone asks. Who is Jesus? And she's answering it by looking for him still dead. And so that's a question that we can also ask with Mary. is like, whom are you seeking? 
Where does your life kind of point you towards? Where are you looking for hope? Where are you looking for redemption? Where are you looking for escape? Where are you looking for fullness? And Jesus is going to ask you, whom are you seeking? All of those questions, where are you looking for fill-in-the-blank, all of those are human longings that we aim towards the wrong thing. And Jesus is saying, aim them towards me. I fulfill them. Whom are you seeking? And so she, she tells him, she just is like, okay, well, I'm seeking for Jesus. Where did they take him? Did you take him? Are you playing a game on me? Like, where'd you put him? I just want to go and give him a proper burial. And this is really honorable of Mary. Like, her love for Jesus really comes through. Because Jesus, as soon as he died, he became unclean. He became cursed with death. And in the Hebrew mindset, that curse was transmissible. So she would actually become unclean by handling Jesus, especially on the Sabbath. And so her love is kind of breaking through some of those barriers that are set up. And she's like, I just want to care for his body. I just want to know where he is laid so that I can come and remember him. And then something happens. And this is where we see Jesus completely unleash the power of the resurrection as it gives birth in Mary's soul. And it is way too much for her to understand in the moment. It's way too much, too much for us to understand even if we devote our entire lives to trying to understand all of the implications of the resurrection and it happens to her in a moment. Because Jesus, the one who was, died, who was dead, the one who lived a life and was crucified and dead is now resurrected. What's he resurrected at? 1 Corinthians 15 tells us he is resurrected as a life-giving spirit. He became a life-giving spirit. Well, Mary's not dead. She's the one who's alive. And so what does this mean? Well, we, we understand this by one word, Mary. And actually, what Jesus actually says to her is Miriam. It's the Aramaic understanding of her name, the Aramaic version, the one that he would have spoken with her face to face. And so far, John has been using the Greek version, Mary, Mary, Mary. And now he switches to emphasize this, to underline it, and saying, Miriam. This is the first thing Jesus does. He calls her by name. That word contains life-giving spirit. The scales from, fall from her eyes. She sees him. She sees him in a way for the first time in all that he was. Not as just another teacher. Not as a failed messiah in a long line of failed messiahs, not as a crucified king only, but as God come back to life. 
And the most important thing for Jesus to do when he came back was to find this one, this demon-possessed woman who didn't really understand what he was doing, who had misguided love for him, and to call her by name. And that word, Mary, transforms her. Rabboni, in an instant, her weeping is turned to rejoicing. Like whiplash. There is no longer tears of grief, but these are tears of joy. She clings to him. She calls him my teacher. She's holding him. I'm never going to lose you again. Don't go away. She's clinging to him. And Jesus does something only Jesus can do because he's just confounding to us. Like this woman is so overcome with joy that she's like grabbing him. And she's like, Mary, don't cling to me. It's like, who says that? Why did he do that? Because Jesus recognized in her, he's teaching her about the purpose of the resurrection in that moment. Mary, I am not raised from the dead so that you can have me and never lose me. So that you can bottle me up and keep me safe. Why did Jesus raise from the dead? It's to ascend. Don't cling to me because I am going. I am ascending. I'm going to the Father, and that is where I belong. That's where I need to be. That's where you actually want me, Mary. So as Jesus ascends, he starts to unwrap the implications of the resurrection. And he does it by saying, hey, Mary, go and tell your brothers, tell my brothers that you've seen me. Tell them that I am ascending. Tell them that I am ascending to my God and to your God, your Father and my Father. And so one of the most precious results of the resurrection is that for those who Jesus has called, he adopts into a family. He becomes the firstborn son of many brothers. And then by calling us and receiving that call that we are aligned, we are united to Jesus in such a way where in a different way than has ever happened before, you belong to God. All of the promises of Scripture belong to you because you belong to him. And again, like Mary doesn't understand any of this. We barely understand it. But the seed of it starts to unfold in her soul as she is no longer weeping. And so this call is not just for Mary. She sent Mary, or he sent Mary, to go and effectively call the rest of the disciples. The rest of the disciples are sent by Jesus to call the nations. And so for you today, there is a call. There's a call anytime 
you come across the message of the gospel, which is that Christ has died for you and he's raised to life for you. And that call happens not just kind of like above your head, but Jesus, in your language, speaks your name. He's fulfilling something that he said in John 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. So he's saying there's other messiahs that are claiming this, but they're not entering the door. They're, they're climbing in another way. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. That's Jesus. He's entering through the door. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So Jesus says these things, and then in verse 6, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. Mary understands it now. Because the resurrected Christ calls her by name, And he does that in a way with the Spirit. So this is something he does then for the disciples right right in the next scene in this gospel. Is he breathes out on them and says, receive the Spirit. What Spirit? It's the Spirit of the resurrected Christ. It's the life-giving Spirit. It is his Spirit. And so when Jesus calls you by name, he's giving you the Spirit He's putting the Spirit in you. He's awakening you up to eternal realities, to resurrection life. Because that is, we'll go back to the angels. What are the angels doing there? The angels are there as witnesses, heavenly messengers. And I don't know how they got this job, but it's a sweet job. Because they are the angels out of all of the heavenly host of angels who got to be at the physical location of the resurrection. We got to see it. We got to be in the dirt where Jesus was dead and is then alive. But angels have a purpose in the Bible. They say God is doing something. He's at work. They are bringing a messenger from the heavenly realm to the earthly realm so that we can know about what God is doing. And so the presence of the angels there is saying they're announcing Everything is different. Nothing's the same anymore. It's a new era. We are now living in the era of the resurrected Christ. The one who resurrected and then ascends to be with the Father and puts his feet on the earth, ruling it perfectly according to his will. And that will is to call you by name so that you might know him, might know his love, and that you might serve as a witness for, yes, this earth, but for the whole cosmos of the power of God who brought not only Jesus from from death to life, but has brought all of us from death to life. And that's what marks this new era, this era of the resurrection, is that the dead are made alive, the blind see, 
The grieving rejoice. Rebels are turned into disciples. And as Herman Bavinck puts it, the timber of the cross has become the tree of life. And it's an everlasting life. So Jesus is calling you here this morning through the gospel to remember he's not done. He's not done with you. He's not done with this world. He's not done with this universe. But he is bringing everything into conformity to this resurrection life. And that's what we get to own as his brothers, as children of God, serving the Father Thanks to the work of Christ. Please pray with me. Mm. Heavenly Father, words seem insufficient. And yet you use them anyways, because they are not dead words. They are words that carry your spirit, your breath. They are words that the spirit joins to the souls of your people. And so, Lord, I ask that all of us would hear and remember and know your goodness and the power of the resurrection, yes, for our own lives, but also for everything that is made. That, Lord, that you would lift our eyes up just as you lifted up Mary's eyes from looking at the old world of death and place our hearts, our hopes, into the world of resurrected life. I pray that you would do this, that you would help us to see it, and that we would worship you and love you for that work. And pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended. What does Jesus do when he ascends? He intercedes for us. He rules over the world, and he sends his spirit to be with the people. But he knows that we still miss that physical presence. We still wonder, like, is this real? And so the Lord's Supper is a chance for us to remember, but also to experience the reality of Jesus' life for us, his death for us, his resurrection for us. And just as real as this physical bread is, that is how real Jesus is for you. You can touch it. It's a love you can touch and taste and see. And that's why when he was preparing to go and die, knowing that he was going to be betrayed, he took the bread with his disciples and he broke it and he gave it to them. And after he had given pieces of it to all of them, he said, this bread is my body and it's given for you. 
take and eat. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had poured it out, and they all had a cup of wine, he said, this wine is my blood. It's the blood of the new covenant that is poured out for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Take and drink. As often as you do this, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until, his, until he comes. And that's what I want to encourage you today, that this taking and receiving, yes, it is you all doing this individually. But guess what? We are doing this collectively together, not just here in this room, but we are doing it as Christ's church globally. And who's watching? The angelic heavenly host. They're looking down and they're seeing multitudes, the nations, every tribe, tongue, and nation proclaiming the same Christ, the same salvation, the same Lord. And so this is an act where we receive, but even as we receive, we bring wonderful glory to God. And so as you're ready, you can come down this aisle and take the elements and then return to your seat and take them when you're ready. But if you're not trusting in Jesus yet, if this isn't a proclamation that you're comfortable with yet, with owning, with saying, yes, I have received that call, and I want to proclaim that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, then I would ask you not to come, that you would actually first consider the claims of the gospel, consider what Jesus has said, that he died for you, because you cannot reconcile yourself to God, but he has made reconciliation for you if you will have him. So I would call you first to receive that and then do this when it's an act of faith. But for everyone else, church, let's join the church globally and proclaim Christ's death until he comes.